You're listening to the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast, where we interview entrepreneurs who have sold their companies and the advisors that help them. We elicit expert advice from exit planners, attorneys, merger and acquisition experts, accountants, business appraisers, and financial advisors, all with a goal of educating you about the sales process. Make sure to visit us on the web at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started a sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. And now, here's your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition. Excited to have with us today an expert in the design and facilitation of transformational family gatherings, Matt Wesley. So, um, Matt, maybe you could start by sharing with us what you think are the three most important things families can do to maintain family harmony. Noah, thanks very much. It's a great opportunity to be with you and your listeners. Um, Obviously, family harmony is something that is critically important to family leaders as they as they move forward in designing whatever exit strategies they're thinking about. The research shows that families that manage to sustain wealth or keep businesses going over time do a few things really, really well. First, uh, they communicate in ways that create trust. Uh, the biggest reason that family businesses fail and that families fall apart is a failure of trust, and oftentimes that's rooted in failures of communication. And so the first skill that a family needs to develop and needs to sustain is that, that degree of, of trust. The second thing that they do extremely well is they build a family identity. And to illustrate that a bit, there was a family that I was working with a while back, and they were in their uh, fourth generation. And we'll just give them the name, uh, the founder's name, Smith. And by the time the fourth generation had come around, there wasn't a single member in the family that had the last name of Smith. And yet all of them referred to themselves as the Smith family. What that did was it, uh, that name, the Smith family, held for that family a whole host of values and meanings and ways of behaving and expectations that held the family together. And so there's a sense of tribe that these families have, a sense of strong family identity. And the third thing is that uh, Families that succeed over time not only have this sense of tribal identity, but they also do a great deal to encourage and celebrate individuality. Uh, one of the worst things that can happen in a family is for the dreams of the individuals in later generations to be squelched. And so there's a tremendous uh, emphasis not only on uh, the belongingness to the family, but also on the autonomy of the individuals in, in the family itself. And so I would say trust, family identity, and, uh, and uh, autonomy or strong individuality are the th- are three hallmarks of, of maintaining family harmony over time. And, and what do you think in terms of each of those, and maybe you could either share a story or an example, what are ways that the families can actually do that? How do they foster creating trust through, you know, great communication and building family identity and encouraging and celebrating individuality. 
That's, a, that, that's an excellent question. Uh, communication is one of the diciest uh, pieces I find. Um, typically, families, uh, uh, individuals and families have uh, very specific roles that they, that they play. And part of the uh, goal of family communication is to break out of those roles. So for example, uh, in one family that I was working with, one of the children uh, had a role of always being the responsible child. And that role was so defining who they were in the family. And they were so much larger than that role in the rest of their life that the family, uh, the family had them locked into that, uh, that piece. And so the, the goal was to really help that person express clearly uh, who they were and how they were. And we got at that through a series of assessments, through some good family conversations, through some visioning work that we did. Uh, and at the end of the day, not only that person, but other members in the family who had been kind of typecast uh, were able to break break free of their those roles and begin to express their individuality that that created a greater degree of trust uh, both on the part of the people who are breaking out of their roles and also uh, also uh, the people who were able to them in new ways. It, it opened ground for people to uh, uh, see the authenticity of the other people involved and to trust that person more. It also began to shift the family identity to some degree because the stories that they had been telling about each other were too small for the family as a whole. And so the end result was they began to develop a different sense of who they were. So they moved from a from a family that saw themselves as kind of narrow and constrained to a family that was much more flexible and and capable of dealing with uh, tension and conflict than they had thought possible. And so that was uh, kind of a trifecta. It opened up trust and communication and built family identity, and it also uh, helped each person individuate and differentiate more within the family. It sounds like those are the reasons why you... Uh kind of pin yourself with having transformational family gatherings, not just a regular old family meeting. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, we may want to talk a little bit more about the family uh, gathering experience. I find that oftentimes when people hear the word meeting, they think of agendas in a kind of business format. Uh, my experience with families is that they're much more like tribes, and what you really want to do is gather the tribe and have an experience together that's out of the ordinary and that, uh, that requires the family to uh, engage differently with one another. So uh, the meetings, uh, the, the gatherings oftentimes have a lot of, uh, a lot of play, a lot of fun, but it's meaningful uh, play and fun, and it allows people to gain uh, new insights into each other and into how they work together as a family. So Matt, maybe following up on that, describe how would someone go about starting to have a family meeting or a family gathering? Um, Typically, uh, there are a couple of there are a couple of, uh, of choice points that you have. I think first of all, it's what kind of gathering do you want? Do you want a, do you want a business meeting? Do you want something uh, that's fairly structured, or do you want to do do something that's a little bit uh, uh, more likely to kind of shift some things at a more fundamental level? Um, if you're interested in doing the latter, uh, the important thing is to understand. Uh, the, the capacity that your family has to do that. And what I, I typically recommend that those meetings be facilitated. Uh, typically the family leader is 
uh, is not in the best position to facilitate the family gathering. First of all, it's important that they participate as a as a person in the meeting, and it's very difficult to be both a participant and a facilitator. Uh, the second thing is that they're often too close to the situation, and they don't really see all of the dynamics that are happening. And the third piece of it is that, uh, that the family will oftentimes uh, uh, bend to the will of the of the of the family leader, uh, which does not foster the kind of communication and family experience that the family leader is really hoping for. So typically, you want to you want to find a skilled facilitator who can come in and help. Uh, first of all, design a family meeting that's going to be specific to the family's needs, whatever those might be. And second of all, uh, who can come in and facilitate something that will be useful and constructive and, and positive uh, for the family and allow it to, uh, uh, to grow and change in, in measured and thoughtful ways. Um, uh, oftentimes these things can end up either becoming uh, so tamped down that, that nobody is making any real progress or they end up uh, being explosive and you, you do more damage than good. And so a skilled facilitator will be able to, to weave their way between those two so that the meeting is productive and people walk away feeling as though there was something useful happened and at the same time that, uh, that the family uh, uh, wasn't out of control, the meeting wasn't out of control or, or, uh, or bad things happened, a, a bad situation was made worse. Can you give me an example of a, a kind of a first meeting that you facilitated and maybe some stories you could share about sure. either success or a problem? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, first of all, when I, when I do family meetings, I, there, no two are ever the same. Uh, but a recent meeting I did uh, with a family, there were uh, six, uh, six children, uh, uh, four of them were married, and so this included all six children plus their spouses, uh, plus the, uh, the the mom and dad. Um, and uh, the family was comprised of very strong individuals, uh, people who were very, very different and didn't really uh, uh, see the world in the same way. There was there were some uh, childhood resentments that existed within the family, and some things that were uh, that were uh, problems from, from way back, and some animosities, different factions that were feeling to favoritism. Some of the children felt as though mom and dad were, uh, were favoring uh, other kids over them and that sort of thing. And what we ended up doing was spending a day and a half together and developed what uh, I've called the Covenant of Right Relations, which is basically a framework for communication within the family. And we spent a good long time doing that. And then the following day, uh, we... Uh, in the second the second day of the uh, of the event, we we practiced uh, communication uh, among the family, and some air was cleared, uh, but it was done in a really constructive and helpful way. And the family has since been using that covenant and referring to it as they uh, as they relate to each other. Do you find that families have an event like an exit of a business that? kick off their desire to have these family gatherings or is there you know a wedding a funeral or is there something that precipitates the first family gathering well almost always my clients are at some level feeling stuck 
And in family businesses, what I find is, is that stuckness oftentimes arises at points of transition. So moving from one generation to the next, the sale of a business, something, something is going on that is uh, precipitating uh, uh, the need for conversation. Sometimes it's a crisis. Oftentimes it's more uh, a sense that, that uh, things are not going as well as they would, uh, they would like, and they want to make sure that they're laying some good uh, uh, groundwork for whatever that, that transaction might be and reducing potential for controversy uh, down the road. And so, you know, from my perspective, there's usually some reason that people are calling me uh, related to an event, uh, but it varies a lot. And the interventions vary even more based on what the family's uh, current adaptive challenges actually are. So in talking about these events and family meetings, when, when do you advise owners to discuss their exit plans with their family? Well, you know, I find most often that people approach this as though uh, it was supposed to be an event rather than a process. So they often think that there's a specific time when they should declare pretty much everything to the family. In my experience, that is rarely the right solution. And so families, I, I think by their nature, are anxious systems. There's a lot of anxiety floating around uh, in, in the family system. And a, a giant disclosure like this only becomes uh, an occasion for that anxiety to really flare up. So that anxiety often shows up as either conflict or avoidance. You either get outright uh, uh, dissension and disagreement or a lot of backstabbing, uh, or you just have people clam up and they don't want to deal with, with things and they, they, they avoid uh, the conversation. So these times of stress tend to spin up the anxiety within the family and it just goes out of control. Um, what usually helps with that anxiety, as a matter of fact, I think it almost always helps with the anxiety, is to have a well-designed process that provides structure for those disclosures. So those disclosures don't become an event, they become a process. And so what happens in those situations is that the family leader is slowly disseminating information over time. And what that does is it allows the family to acclimate to the information as it, as it comes out. And it also allows the family leader to test how all that information is landing. Who is it that is interested? Who isn't interested? Why aren't they interested? Uh, how can you begin to create some uh, vibrant conversations around some of this stuff so that it's, it's really uh, having, having a good effect. And if you begin to look at this as a multi-year process as opposed to an event, then I think you, uh, you're, you're miles ahead. And to just illustrate this, I have uh, a couple of families that I've worked with. One uh, family is in the middle of a generation two to generation three succession. And um, the, the the pivotal event is the retirement of, of the two brothers in, in generation uh, two, and the one brother's desire to have his own son take over the business. That has proven highly controversial within the family, and it was announced in, uh, in a very short time period without a lot of preparation. And so the end result is that the family is spinning itself up and, uh, and uh, 
uh, very, very concerned about the succession plan, and it's put a lot of the family uh, – it's put the company in jeopardy. It's put uh, family relationships in jeopardy, and I'm being asked to come in and help structure some things so that that the family system can – can move forward and the business can survive this transition. In another case, I've been working uh, with a fellow over the course of the last three years, and he's been slowly and methodically educating his children about the nature of the business, uh, beginning to disclose. Uh, we're now in, a, in, in year two of this process, and we're beginning to disclose financial information and beginning to help people understand and read the balance sheets, understand the dynamics of the business. Some of the kids are more interested than others, but uh, but all of them are moving along, and he's able to sit down with those who aren't as interested and uh, and help them through it. And also put some advisors around those kids uh, if they need to if they need to understand the financials, so that even if they don't have any inherent interest in the business, they're getting good advice. And so the idea is that is that this is a you know it's a much more methodical and thoughtful process, and the end result is that it's going much more smoothly than the first example. And that's why we're here trying to promote uh, exit. Exit strategy simplified and, and getting owners to be thoughtful about their planning and spend some time before a transaction or a transition to actually plan for all these events. So it sounds like you recognize it takes some time to drip the information out to the family because if you drop a bomb, uh, you're going to get a reaction that you might not like. Exactly. And I don't know about you, Noah, but my experience is that, you know, good exit planning uh, – at minimum, takes three to five years. Has that been your experience? Yeah, I would say, especially when we're talking about sophisticated families and companies, Um, Mm -hmm. which brings me to another question, just, you know, as it relates to money uh, and, and the size of these businesses that you and I deal with, you know, a lot of the owners that I speak with, they're concerned that money might be a negative thing to their family. So right. what advice do you have for families that share that concern? Well, you know, it's, that's, that's, a, that's a really interesting question. And I have to say that one of the core concerns that my uh, clients have is around entitlement and what that, what that means and how to avoid uh, uh, issues uh, surrounding entitlement in, in the next generation or the generation after. Uh, as you and I both know, and probably all your listeners uh, know as well, that money is is really neither positive nor negative. It, it's a tool. It's a it's a way of of uh, operating in the world, and it's a resource to to getting things done. And while it may sound obvious, uh, families that succeed over time define their wealth as more than money. Um, well, I find that a lot of clients talk that way. They say, yeah, there are things that are more important than money. In terms of the way that they practice, everything they talk about in their family gatherings has to do with the money. What I see successful families doing over time is that they talk about their resources very differently. And one way to conceptualize this is to see that there are different types of uh, for want of a better term, capital in the family. Families that view their wealth more broadly ask how they can use 
uh, the financial assets to build these other types of capital. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, first of all, there are the individuals within the family. We talked earlier about the importance of individuality. And as you think about it, uh, every family has its human capital, and that's probably the most valuable uh, resource, the people who are in the family and who are, who are functioning in the family. And you want the individuals in the family to be strong, capable, healthy, uh, productive, productive folks. And so that's the first uh, critical form of capital. The second is that sense of identity that I talked about earlier, the culture of the family, that there are strong values, good communication, and uh, lots, of, uh, lots of good, strong identity within the family. And then the final piece of it would be the way that things are, are structured, the family businesses, the trust, the, um, the uh, uh, ecosystem of the advisors that the family has, and so on and so forth, the connections with boards and maybe nonprofits in the world. And so when you look at a family that defines its wealth in terms of the people in the family, the culture of the family, and uh, the structures that the family is maintaining, all of a sudden you have a much more robust view of wealth. And so the financial assets, to some degree, become uh, a resource for investing in those various types of capital. And uh, as with any other investment, you really want some well-defined expectations and outcomes within those areas as you're investing in the human, social, and cultural capital of the family. And if you're investing in those things, you would want to be seeing, for example, with human capital, you'd want to be seeing the people in your family becoming more productive and happier and engaged with life. If you're investing in the cultural capital, you want to see the family developing a deeper sense of identity and cohesion. And if you're investing in the social capital, uh, you should be seeing the family more effectively connect with their advisors to philanthropic world and so on and so forth. Families that start engaging in that process tend to have much less difficulty with entitlement over time because they're viewing the financial assets not as an end in itself, but as a means to building these other kinds of resources with accountabilities going back and forth within the family. Do you have a success story to share about a family you worked with where they came in and maybe their children or grandchildren had certain entitlement issues, but through a process, you know, they came out the other end uh, with a renewed kind of vision and uh, appreciation for their wealth? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think so. You know, it, it's interesting. Entitlement is really difficult. It's a, it, once it's started, it's very difficult to uh, begin begin to turn around. Uh, that said, I think it can be done. And the way to do it is by setting up uh, degrees of uh, and levels of, of responsibility within the family. So one of the things that is very, very useful in these kinds of situations is what I, I might consider a family bank. And you can set this up either formally or informally. But the idea is that if somebody needs money within the family, they would go to a committee of other family members who would then make a decision as to whether or not to fund that person's request. And so the idea is that uh, what you're doing is you're empowering that person to accomplish a, a genuine dream that they have as opposed to uh, enabling them by, by just simply uh, giving them money. A um, couple of examples. One family I worked with set up an educational trust, and that educational trust required that when anybody would go off to college, what they would do is apply for a loan to go to school. Uh, 
they would then uh, make certain commitments to the trust to the trustees or the committee that was dispersing these funds and those commitments included things like maintaining a certain GPA, getting through school in a particular amount of time, so on and so forth. And those those agreements could be tailored for each individual. If they honored those commitments, then they, they would still be entitled to receive uh, uh, funding for the next year of college, or if they began not to keep those commitments, then there would have to be a conversation around it. When the kids graduated from school, what they would then do is go out into the workforce. There'd be no repayment obligation immediately, but by the time they hit their late 20s or early 30s, they'd be required to pay it back. And the reason they had to pay it back was because the family had invested in them uh, and in their education, and therefore they had an obligation to make sure that that money was available for the next generation to invest in them. And so you're building this degree of human capital. It's not, you're not enabling them. You're empowering them by giving them an opportunity to get an education. You also have some accountabilities in play so that they're, they're not just simply receiving the money without strings. They're, they're definite strings, but they're not controlling strings. They're the kind of strings that, uh, that create a fabric of commitments and responsibilities back to the family as opposed to somebody telling somebody what they should do. And then you're building family culture. You're saying this is a family that values education and that thinks that education is important and should be, uh, should be, uh, promoted within the, within the family. So that was one example. Uh, other examples uh, are, I, I, there was one family where uh, one of the kids had wanted to uh, uh, actually build a little music studio in his, in his, uh, uh, in his garage and asked his parents for the money. And his parents said, no, we're not, we're not going to give you the money, but why don't you go to your grandfather? And what the grandfather had the sense to do, uh, and this was not so much my advice, but as this began to take shape, I began to work with this because it was such a brilliant thing that the grandfather did. He basically said to the to the to, to his grandson, put together a business plan and here are the names of the advisors that I work with. Go talk to my lawyer, go talk to my accountant uh, and come back with a business plan. The kid did it. I think the grandfather thought, you know, this this kid's not gonna not gonna take it anywhere. But he did. He went and, and created the business plan, brought it back to his grandfather. His grandfather uh, began to uh, go through it and work with it and, uh, and then uh, uh, funded it. Uh, the kids started a music studio, and it turned out that all these garage bands that were in the area uh, needed a place to record music so they could record there for not very much money. And uh, this kid ended up putting himself through college on the revenues from from this little music studio, and when he left for college, he turned it over to his brother, and his brother put himself through college. So the amount of learning that happened in that was extraordinary, and it it's a it's a way to battle that sense of entitlement. It required hard work, it required diligence, it required uh, some real effort uh, to move that forward. I think the worst thing that parents can do is give uh, is just is just give the money to their kids uh, without expectations of, 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 uh, of responsibility and commitment and accountability coming back. Yeah, totally great. Those are great stories. Uh, talking about a family bank, maybe you could share, you know, a, a little bit about different family governance structures and, 
how families go about choosing how they're going to run their family if they're going to be autocratic or democratic and maybe you could describe. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what I'm finding is there's a, there's a, a real shift in the way that families are looking at themselves. I think if you look at, uh, at, uh, the greatest generation, there was, there was a, uh, a kind of uh, benevolent autocratic approach. So the idea would be that I as a family leader know what's best for my family and I'm going to make the decisions. I'm going to create my estate plan and my kids will learn about it at some point, maybe when I'm dead, maybe beforehand, but they're not going to have much say in how I put my estate plan together, what I do uh, with my business and, and, and so on and so forth. I think with the baby boom generation, there is such a, a desire for higher collaboration with the kids on the whole. Now, obviously, there are exceptions uh, all over the place, and uh, that's true with the prior generation as well. But as a trend, I see baby boomers looking to, uh, to create much more collaborative uh, environments. And so uh, what I'm seeing is that families are uh, beginning to put together um, uh, collaborative decision-making uh, processes. Um, I think each family needs to find its own best approach. Uh, clearly, when you get to a generation, uh, say generation three or four, where you have lots of cousins who may or may not know each other, you have to move to some sort of a formal governance system that has uh, some level of representative uh, uh, structure to it. Um, I find, though, even in uh, even in second-generation families, oftentimes what you'll find is that a group of the kids are uh, oriented, say, towards philanthropy. Another group may be oriented towards business. And it's best to follow the natural inclinations of the children uh, to a large degree. So you may require the kids who are interested in philanthropy to spend a little bit of time uh, getting to know the business and understanding the business. But it's best to let them go to town on the philanthropic pieces and allow them to learn what they need to learn to do that work and uh, vice versa for the kids that are interested in, in the business piece. Uh, let them spend most of their time in the business world uh, with a little bit of an understanding of what, what's going on within the philanthropy. So uh, the key then is to have uh, regular gatherings where the family's communicating about all the various things that they're doing and, and, and working on and where those the accomplishments can be celebrated going forward. Um, again, uh, families are much more like tribes than they are like businesses, and so to consider uh, uh, having a family council meeting uh, is is not a bad way to go when you have a, a relatively small family, say up to 20. After that, you have to start getting a little bit more formal about the whole thing. So if uh, one of our listeners is planning to exit their business, have this significant liquidity event, you know, take the time to take care of uh, their family and some multi-generational planning, what are the things they should be doing to make sure their legacy is long-lasting and positive? That's, that's an excellent question. Again, uh, coming back up to the first uh, piece that I talked about, um, there is, I think, a, uh, a need for communication and trust through the family. So that's, uh, that's the first job, is to make sure that the family is communicating well and is, is, uh, is uh, moving forward in a way that is positive. Uh, 
the second thing that I think that I would encourage them to do is to make sure that the family is discussing the questions that matter, the questions that are really going to be making a difference. Uh, one of the key things, if there is a liquidity event, is how should that money, uh, the assets, uh, be divided among the children? And a really critical question is how much of that money should be set aside for the family as a whole? So when I was doing estate planning, I was an estate planning attorney before I started doing this work, I would often ask clients to envision if they had three children that they would divide their estate into four shares. There would be one share for each of their children and one share for the family. And we would decide later what the amounts in each of those would be, but I would ask them to dream about what they would do with that fourth share. How would they invest that money in their family going forward? And what I encouraged them to do was bring their children into that conversation. And as a matter of fact, that's how I got into doing this work. Uh, we would have family meetings where the children would be active participants in the design and development of the parents' estate plan. Now, some people would uh, would uh, hold back quite a bit of information from their kids. Others would uh, disclose uh, an awful lot of information, sometimes all of it. But the bottom line was that they were involving their children in the estate planning process. And that did a couple things. First of all, it, it definitely shaped how they created their estate plans. Uh, rarely would I find somebody coming in and saying that uh, that the, the plan that they ended up with was what they had thought they would end up with. The kids influenced it dramatically. The second thing it did was it created a great deal of buy-in on the part of the kid, uh, and it reduced the potential for conflict after someone was, uh, someone was deceased. Uh, and then the third thing it did was it actively engaged the kids, and what I found uh, at least seven out of every ten times, was that people would say, hey, why are we waiting until mom and dad are dead? Why don't we start doing something now? And so the end result was that philanthropies got started, kids uh, started uh, uh, entrepreneurial funds and starting businesses uh, with a little bit of participation on the part of the family in the business. So if the family uh, funded a business, maybe the family would retain 20% of the of the value of the uh, of the uh, capital that went into the business and as an as an equity investment, um, those kinds of things. So the end result was that uh, there was a lot of really good generative stuff that happened. And then the final piece of it is that the parents got to test drive their estate plan um, so that they were no longer guessing about how that would land, but they actually had good intelligence, and then they could come back and modify things uh, later. So if they had a gifting program and the kid, uh, one of the kids had squandered the money, that was useful information in terms of how, how they might want to think about their estate plan going forward. So it, it, was, uh, it was a really robust way to do estate planning, and so this whole notion of collaboration uh, is critical. And a, and a good place to start is actually, after a liquidity event, is actually with, uh, with the estate planning piece and asking questions about how to use that money for the benefit not only of the individuals within the family, but the, but the family as a whole. I think you and I could agree that involving kids in estate planning is probably a best practice, but not a common practice. So maybe right. you can describe what are the ways you think it could become more common? What are the conversations that owners should be having either with themselves and their spouses or their kids or their advisors 
to get them over the hump of thinking this is only for them. Well, you know, I, I, quite frankly, I think it's the attorneys uh, and CPAs that are most at fault in this. Uh, most attorneys and CPAs think of estate planning as tax planning, and that's obviously a critical part. Uh, you want to pass on as much as you possibly can to the next generation. But very few attorneys or CPAs are thinking about the impact of the wealth on the family in the long run and the psychological as well as familial dynamics of that uh, that that transfer. It's oftentimes heavy on the mind of the client. That's really what they want to talk about, uh, but they don't know how to bring it up with their advisors and they're not sure how to how to begin to have that conversation. Uh, so the first and most important question I would say for uh, business owners is to find advisors who who get the whole question of wealth impact and are willing to go down uh, the path with uh, with the uh, the business owner, or to find consultants who are willing to help them uh, think some of this stuff through. Um, big chunk of it has to do with just the shift in mentality around what estate planning really is. I think if you look back traditionally, uh, an estate was obviously a large chunk of land and uh, several hundred years ago, estate planning consisted in how do you steward the land through the next generation and how does that land continue to be productive for the family going forward. With the advent of liquid wealth, uh, that model changed dramatically and it all, it all became uh, about passing money on uh, moving estate planning back to a notion of stewardship at some level or another is a um, uh, is a big mind shift for uh, both clients and advisors and beginning to think about that as a uh, a way of looking at estate planning again will I think create a much more holistic Approach. Not that we can ever go backwards. I'm not advocating a kind of romantic notion of uh, of estate planning, but rather a notion that uh, that this is really a uh, a legacy and a um, a resource for the family going forward. So thinking seven generations down the road is is uh, is important, and it 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 shifts the way people approach these things. That's great. Maybe uh, in addition to all the great information you've shared so far, you could talk a little bit about maybe a, uh, a story that m- might sound to one of our listeners like something they could they could associate with, where they're facing a difficult decision. And maybe you could kind of go both ways and tell a story about one person who made the, the tough decision and, you know, even though they were concerned about the consequences, they they took action. And maybe another story about an owner that, uh, you know, knew they were in a difficult spot but decided not to uh, face the challenge at all. Sure. Well, you know, it's interesting. Most of my clients, and, and uh, I, I have to say the reason they're hiring me is because they've got the courage to address the issues they know need to be addressed. Uh, and it does take a degree of courage and vulnerability. You have to you have to have a willingness to admit that uh, that you don't have all the answers. So, uh, one client that I worked with was a fellow who uh, who had a uh, 
a business that was an operating business. He was looking at transferring it to uh, to the next generation. He had uh, two sons and one daughter. Uh, the daughter and one of the sons was involved in the business and very, very interested in in running the business. The daughter was actually the more capable of the two and more likely to uh, to be the person to eventually run the business, uh, but she wasn't ready. Uh, Dad was getting a lot of pressure from Mom to begin to retire and slow down, and he was, I think, ready to do that as well. Uh, also, like almost all business owners, wanted to stay in the saddle to some degree uh, or another. And so uh, what we ended up doing was we ended up structuring uh, over the course of uh, some very long and at points difficult conversations, uh, a process whereby he would uh, begin to exit the business and begin to root, move more into the role of, uh, of chairman of the board uh, with minimal presence in the day-to-day -day operation of the business. Uh, and that was tough for him. It was very difficult for him. And it turned out to be difficult for his wife, too. His wife was heavily invested in being the wife of the CEO of this business, and it 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 gave her certain uh, uh, payoffs in, in terms of social status and all the all the rest. So it came as a surprise to her that while at, on the one hand she wanted her husband to slow down, on the other she didn't, and there were these competing commitments that she was dealing with. So she had to work through some of that that stuff. Um, and we worked through that together. The other thing that we did was we decided that uh, it would be really useful to bring in an outside person as a temporary CEO. And this is actually a solution that a number of people have adopted, and I think it can be quite useful in certain circumstances. So the idea is that uh, it's very difficult to mentor your own children adequately. You can do it up to a certain point, but after that, uh, it, it's it, it, it's difficult. And so we, uh, we brought in a third party who took uh, this fellow's daughter under, under his wing and uh, spent five years uh, helping her uh, develop and grow into uh, the CEO she is today. And the business is thriving. The brother is doing, is doing really well. He's actually doing what he loves, which is the, uh, is the marketing side of the business. Uh, and she's, she's obviously running the, 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 the business as CEO. The, um, the uh, third child is, has never been involved in the business, but, uh, but is a passive investor. And what we did there was work with uh, him around issues of ownership and understanding what the difference is between ownership and management. Uh, he actually sits on the board, which is useful. One of the things we did, too, was we uh, brought the board. Uh, Dad's role became, uh, as, as chairman of the board, to develop a good, strong, functioning board uh, going forward. And so uh, he brought on some uh, some outside folks and created a little board of advisors to start. And now a couple of those people are actually serving on the board. So it was a... Uh, it was kind of a win-win-win all the way around. People who don't do it well just, uh, by and large, bury their heads in the sand and uh, and you know hope for the best. Uh, and I I think you and I have both seen that uh, happen over and over again. Uh, uh, I think if someone picks up the phone and calls us, they're concerned about the exit strategies, and if they're open to coaching and advice, uh, then uh, then they oftentimes will do quite well through those transitions and uh, and 
those that uh, that don't want to face it, uh, the consequences come down on their families later on. Well, you know, one of the things I feel is that it's kind of never too late, that no yeah. matter what the crisis is that's passed or the intervention that needs to be had, there's still an opportunity to, to right the past wrongs and, and move forward as a family and maintain harmony and create harmony towards the future. So have you had any, any of those experiences where maybe an owner was calling you and their the impression was, you know, I know I'm calling you too late. I should have called you five years ago, but here's my story. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and that family that I told you about before, where uh, where he had decided on uh, on the succession plan with his son, and it was causing all sorts of family anxiety, is exactly that kind of story. Uh, it's a it's a uh, a situation where uh, where he had already made critical and key decisions, and uh, and it it had been done without adequate preparation, and so the family was in a degree of turmoil, uh, and. Uh, so coming in, a lot of it is about creating structures. And there in that family, one of the critical things is, again, developing a good, strong board of directors with some outside uh, voices on it. Uh, there will be some uh, uh, some other performance metrics around uh, his son so that the family has confidence that the business will continue to produce revenues at, uh, at a, at a uh, sustainable rate. Uh, a lot of people uh, in the family have uh, depend on cash flow from this business not to support themselves, but to supplement uh, their their lives and their uh, the lives of their of their children. So it goes to things like private school tuition or or helps uh, children afford a house they might not otherwise afford, be able to afford or take a vacation or save for retirement. And so there's a lot riding on it. And so creating those performance metrics. So at that point, it becomes a question of what's what's required to kind of begin to decrease the anxiety within the family and then improve communication. So uh, transparency about the business and what's going on within the business and developing uh, routine uh routine processes for communicating uh, within the family and communicating honestly and with candor uh, becomes critical. And again, structure is is really useful for that. So it's never too late. It's not. I don't think it is. You know, unless you're in unless you're in the middle of litigation, uh, it's 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 not too late. And unfortunately, there are those stories out there. Uh, but uh, but it's. It, as long as uh, as long as people are still, uh, you know, they're not at each other's throats, uh, it's not too late. So, what else would you like to share with our listeners about maintaining family harmony, either before or after an exit strategy or a transfer of ownership in their family business? You know, it, 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 that's an interesting question. Uh, I would say a big chunk of this has to do with uh, with just enjoying each other in uh, in some important ways, you know the the um, the tendency is to get all knotted up around these issues of of money and all the rest. And so the families that I know that do really well with this uh, do spend time looking at that, and they're they're willing to invest in that. Uh, but they also take trips together periodically. Uh, they they hang out with their grandchildren a great deal and spend uh, spend time uh, with with their grandkids. They spend time with their children. 
there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of uh, together time, which isn't to say that they're intrusive. It's just to say that there's uh, there's a spirit of celebration and uh, and joy uh, and a and a willingness to try and uh, try and develop the relationships on on uh, on deeper levels. I think it requires of uh, parents that they come to see their children in new ways. Uh, the uh, the kids have almost always grown beyond what uh, what their parents have seen of them, and it's difficult for the children to uh, to reveal their true selves to their parents. And so the parents need to give permission uh, to the kids and 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 do that in ways that aren't intrusive, but allow the children to become uh, become seen by their parents and by each other. Again, all those roles and the family stories that exist oftentimes lock people into into uh, patterns that aren't uh, that aren't big enough for the family and who the family has become. And so the question is widening the horizon and opening things up. And the families that succeed in doing that and spending uh, good quality time together in ways that are uh, that are uh, free and less structured are oftentimes the most successful families. Well, that's great. I thank you so much for being our guest today. Uh, maybe you could share with our listeners if they wanted to design a transformational family gathering, how they might want to get in touch with you or if they had questions about maintaining family harmony. What's the best way for them to reach you? Sure. Well, you know, they could, they could give me a call at 425-647-6066 or send me an email to matt, M-A-T-T, at the Wesley Group, which is T-H-E-W-E-S-L-E-Y-G-R-O-U-P.com. Great. And all that information is on our website, ExitStrategySimplified.com. Thanks so much for being our guest today, and uh, we hope you listeners will join us for another podcast. Thank you, Noah. Thanks for listening to the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast. Make sure to visit us on the web at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started the sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. If you have any questions about today's podcast, you can contact your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition at 855-540-0400. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes and give us your feedback. Until next time, this is the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast.